0: I know that you just sat down, but if you're able, would you stand in reverence for the Word of God as we read the text of today's scriptures? From the book of First Peter. I'm going to be preaching from a number of places in the book of First Peter, but in order to establish ourselves in the Word of God um, in this text, let's read from First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. 1 Peter 1, verse chapter 1 to 12, verse 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of God. Let's pray. O oh God, we ask for your help now to open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. Instruct us, we ask, O oh God. Grant us new gospel eyes to see the glory of God in our salvation and thereby, O God, to put our trust in you, O Lord, for the afflictions and travails of life. I ask, O Lord, that you may comfort and strengthen your people in your truth and that you may also use me, O Lord, as your mouthpiece to be faithful to the Word of God, to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So a few months ago, John told me that he was going to be camping uh, this week, and then he wasn't, and then he was. And it was a little bit unclear. And as I was, as it was getting closer and closer time for me to contemplate and pray over the things that I wanted to share with you, because I only have this one Sunday, I didn't want to start something that would be long and take me many Sundays to get through. I didn't want to uh, share something that would be um, not beneficial to you. And so I actually had a little bit of a hard time contemplating what would God have for you to hear from his word. And as I prayed, and as I thought, and as I meditated on what to do, uh, the reality that really pressed heavily on my heart was the tremendous weight of uncertainty and pain that many of you have been facing, especially over the past number of weeks and months. And I thought about this, and perhaps I felt particularly you know, morose, because today's September 11th, and of course, 21 years ago today, there was the thousands of people that had died in the attack in New York City. But it seemed true to me that the words from Job chapter 5, verse 7, were particularly true for this body, which says, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward, which is not a very helpful Bible verse. But the families in this church body are going through all kinds of afflictions and painful trials, cancer spreading through their loved ones' bodies and children with uncertain illnesses and relationships that are strained and painful and people whom are called our family not really feeling like family because of issues of a conflict and lack of, of, of unity and the potential for long hospital stays and complications with pregnancies and so on. And as your pastor, I couldn't think about what really to bring to you to encourage you and to comfort your heart other than I wanted the peace and the strength from the Lord to uh, be multiplied in your circumstances. And so... I don't have anything especially pastoral to say, but I wanted us to spend a little bit of time to look at what the Word of God says as we go through the pain of the present circumstances that many of us are facing. And I wanted to reinforce in us the gospel perspective that the Word of God gives towards those trials and those sufferings that occur in everyday life. And there's a lot of places that we could look in the scriptures for God's perspective on trials. And normally when I preach, I like to preach a certain particular text in the Word of God. And we'll zoom in on that text and we'll try to dig out and mine all the riches of the Word of God in that text. And that's what John does as well. And he has the added benefit of being able to go from one Sunday to the next, sequentially, expositionally through the word of God and parking himself as long as necessary in order to get the richness and all the juices out of that special particular passage that can be there. And that's what we generally do. And so if you like, we spend our time looking at God's Word through a microscope to really see all the depth and all of the the texture and the detail that is available in the Word of God. And I'm glad that we do that most Sundays. But today, I wanted to try something a little bit different. I wanted to zoom out, and I wanted to examine a larger text of Scripture, like with a wide-angle telephoto lens, and try to capture the breadth of the landscape that is presented to us in the Word of God. And so when we we zoom in deep, we see the detail. We can get the depth of the revelation of God. And now when we're zooming out, what I pray may happen is that we can capture the sense of the continuity and the overarching themes that the Scripture gives to us and gain a new appreciation for the big picture of what God's Word has for us to see. And I wanted to look at this big-picture perspective to the book of First Peter. Martin Luther said 1 Peter contains in it everything necessary for a Christian. And he's right. Martin Luther had a tendency to exaggerate. Perhaps that's one of his exaggerations. But nonetheless, his praise to the book of First Peter is well-deserved because in First Peter we can see so many of the foundational truths of our salvation and the gospel. And there's many of those truths all throughout the book of 1 Peter. But what I want to try to do today is to examine something that might not be very clear on the surface, but I pray as we look deeper, we can see is an undergirding foundation or if you like, kind of hidden bedrock in the book of 1 Peter. And that is the theme of trusting God in the midst of afflictions. And we're going to drill down in a few places. But we're also going to step back and look at the breadth of what God is speaking to us in the book of 1 Peter and try to capture a bit of the forest as well as the trees to understand this theme of trusting God in the midst of affliction throughout the book of 1 Peter. Peter. So let's begin. 1 Peter chapter 1 is written to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, those, those places might not mean very much to us. But anyways, they are in what we would call today modern Turkey. Okay, So Peter is writing to Christians in an area of a predominantly Roman world in a place that we now know as Turkey. And at that time, as at this time, the believers in that region were a religious minority scattered amongst the pagan, idolatrous, pluralistic Roman world. And we don't know exactly what these Christians were facing, but, that we, but we do know that Peter wrote this letter on the eve of an inter- intense persecution that Christians would go through very rec- very quickly after this under the emperor Nero, and that it would continue for the next about 50 or so years. And chapter 1, verse 6, and so I, I really hope that you do have your Bibles open, because we're going to be leafing around a little bit more today, perhaps, than we would normally do, do. But if you can follow along, I think it'll help. Chapter 1, verse 6, that these... Christians were says that these Christians were grieved by various trials. Chapter 2, verse 19, says that they were enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. Chapter 3, verse 9, says that they were treated evil and that they were reviled. They were reviled. Chapter 3, verse 16, says that they were slandered Chapter 3, 17 says that they suffered for doing good. Chapter 4, verse 4 says that they were being maligned because they did not engage in the same flood of debauchery that the people in the world around them were engaging in. And then chapter 5, verse 9 says that what they were going through was not especially unusual but that they were experiencing the same kinds of sufferings that were being experienced by their brothers throughout the world. And so that helps us to understand a little bit of the context of the people, the recipients that Peter is addressing in his letter. They were a group of beleaguered and afflicted Christians. No doubt some had relatively normal lives, but all of them were beset by various trials. They faced opposition from the world around them. They faced maligning and reviling and ill and evil being done against them, even while they themselves were engaged in doing good. And what they faced there at the beginning of Christianity probably is very, very similar to the challenges that the Christians in that region face now. We know Turkey. It's a predominantly Muslim country. Very few believers remain in that region. It was at one point the epicenter of Christianity in many respects. But now, very few believers remain, and the ones that are there face religious oppression, social marginalization, and hardships. And so to them, Peter is writing to encourage them, to strengthen them in the midst of the challenges and the trials and the afflictions that they were going through, particularly the trials that they were going through, suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering because of Christ. But but the, the lesson in this book is not just for Christians in persecuted countries. The lesson in this book is for Christians at all times, in all places, who suffer various types of trials and challenges and afflictions as we go through life in this world. And so Peter is saying to us and to them in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, if you look at 4, 12 and 13, he's kind of giving this instruction to them where he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, Peter is telling the people, hey, you know, your life is not abnormal. What you're going through, it's not unusual for a Christian. Don't be surprised at difficulty, but rather be sustained in the difficulty and then he's writing this book in order to give them that sustenance and in order to strengthen them and help them to find trust in God in the midst of afflictions. And so there, th- th- this theme of trusting God in the midst of trials and, and uh, trusting in the Lord in the midst of affliction is a major theme in 1 Peter. And it, it's kind of like a landscape painting, as I said. And we're going to zoom out. We're going to look at the main parts. But when we look at a landscape, we see houses, we see rivers and lakes, and we see cities, we see people. And what we don't see underneath is the bedrock that's there. But in a few places, the bedrock pops out and we get these jutting mountains. And then over here, another jutting mountain but it's there underneath the surface in all of those places. And it's holding up the rest of the picture that we're seeing. And so maybe that's a helpful word picture for you to see. It's like First Peter is a landscape painting. And we see many different lessons and many different gospel applications and glorious truths to help us in our walk. But underneath of them all, we have this underlying theme of trusting God in the midst of affliction and entrusting ourselves to God while we're going through that affliction. And, and so there's lessons to husbands and lessons to wives and lessons to workers and lessons to bosses and lessons to pastors, and there's lessons to citizens, and they're all there in this book, all sitting on top of this bedrock point that Paul's trying to make about trusting the Lord and finding comfort in the midst of affliction in God. And so we don't have time to trace the theme exhaustively throughout the whole book, but I want to highlight a few major contours, right? The major peaks that pop out from the surface and help us to find and ground ourselves in this major theme of how do we find comfort in the midst of affliction in trust of God. And the theme of trusting God is highlighted maybe especially in the book of 1 Peter in three places. Probably we could find more, and I would encourage you in your study at home, go back and read through 1 Peter and see this theme in other places. But in our study, we're going to especially look at chapter 1, where Peter demonstrates to his readers the trustworthiness of God by pointing them to the glories of the wonders of God and salvation and the effect of God's grace and the salvation that God has given to them in their lives, even in the midst of trials. So that's kind of the first mountain peak. Chapter one, where the wonders of the glory of God give testimony to the trustworthiness of God. In other words, Peter is saying, here's the facts. We can trust God, why? And then he says, evidence number one, evidence number two, evidence number three, let me give you the evidence of God's trustworthiness. And that lays the foundation for everything that comes again. And then in chapter 2, Peter presents us an example of trusting God in the midst of affliction. And the the example is the Lord Jesus, and we'll look at that. And then in chapter 4 and 5, Peter gives us some admonitions. Okay, so that's essentially the outline of today's sermon. Three points. The first point being the demonstration of the trustworthiness of God in our salvation. And then the second point, the example of Christ trusting in God. And then the third, very quick point, will be an admonition to trust in God. Okay, so the facts, the example, and the application. May God help us to be strengthened in these truths by his word. All right, so let's begin by looking at chapter one. And at the outset, Peter is encouraging these suffering Christians. Uh, pointing them to the riches of the saving grace of God. And so let's look at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, where he's beginning to lay these evidences of God's trustworthiness. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so this is verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and then pay attention here, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And if we're not careful, we would uh, glance over this and we would say, oh, here, Peter is uh, giving a greeting to the people. And he is. But it's more than that. He's reminding them of the glories, of the wonders, of the salvation that we have received from God. And he he points at the very, very outset. He didn't even greet them yet. He just points them right at the beginning. Believers beleaguered and suffering God's glorious salvation. Boom, 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 boom. And reminds them of of these glorious truths. And the first thing that he does here is he says that our salvation is rooted in the plan of God, the Trinity. Look back at verse 1 and 2. Look at how Trinitarian Peter is in describing our salvations. He calls us elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He, calls, he says that, that these people, though they live in this world, are not citizens of this world, but have been elected by God's divine grace to be objects of God's grace and to be citizens of God's kingdom and to be adopted into God's family. And then Peter writes that they were sanctified or set apart by the Holy Spirit For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, committed to the Lord Jesus and cleansed and forgiven and given over in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so, I mean, there's a lot of sentences here. But what Peter is telling them and what he's telling us is this. Dear tested Christian, let this dawn upon your mind that if you are a Christian at all, It is because God, the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has set his heart upon you in all eternity and has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation in time that you might be given over completely in faith and love to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying, Peter is saying. And so if there's any evidence for the trustworthiness of God and the goodness of God, it is this, that God has Elected his own, that we are anchored in the very heart of God from eternity unto eternity, and that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have made this divine covenant of redemption to bring little you and little me into a glorious salvation. And so that is what Peter thinks as being exhibit A of the trustworthiness of God. How can we know we can trust God when we have the news of a a difficult pregnancy or when we have the news of a terminal illness? How can we know that we can trust God? And the answer is we can trust God because he has wrought for us a glorious and Trinitarian salvation. And this is thrilling to know and and it gives us such comfort what what more comfort can we have that god the father and the son and the holy spirit all have compacted and worked together to bring us to this salvation that god himself has graciously elected and the son himself has purchased us by shedding his blood and the spirit in the in the fullness of time has regenerated us and brought our eyes from uh, being dead and closed and blind, to allowing us to see and to behold the Lord Jesus Christ with faith and bringing us to a greater and a fuller obedience and love in Him. That's the salvation, the, the pardon of sin, the forgiveness of sin. It's all mine. It's the new life. All of this rooted in the eternal plan of God. And so what what can give us more stability in trials? What can assure us of God's goodness, his steadfastness of purpose, and his trustworthiness than this? To know that your life in Christ is rooted in God's eternal plan and God's eternal love and the Son's offering of himself and the Spirit's affecting the Son's work and all of that working together to fulfill the eternal plan of God. So that's, that's exhibit eight. Peter gives for demonstrating why we can trust God in the midst of trials. But he continues, there's more, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not only is our salvation rooted in the eternal plan of God the Trinity, but, but also it, it has in it this glorious hope for an inheritance. The scripture says, new life into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. God is, is keeping it. Jesus in the Gospels talks about Treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. Treasures in, in, in earth, they lose depreciation, right? They, they lose value because of inflation. We know what that's like nowadays. Ross, uh, rust and moth corrupt. Thieves break in and steal. That's not the kind of inheritance Peter has in mind here. He has in mind an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you by God God is keeping this inheritance. All the privileges of salvation are preserved for us by God as a heavenly treasure that moth and rust cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break in and steal. So there are afflictions in this life, to be sure. Peter is agreeing with that. As pilgrims, sometimes we climb the hill difficulty. But there is a rich reward awaiting God's people in the celestial city, and it is kept for us by God in the heavenly Jerusalem. And that is an encouragement to our hearts. We can endure trials because the scripture says our our light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed. The scripture says no eye has seen nor entered into the heart of man what God has in store for his people. But for some of us, I think the the uncertainty is less about the the eternal promises and glorious treasures awaiting in heaven. The uncertainty is more whether we will make it there. We we question, you know, the way is hard. My flesh is so strong. I feel so overwhelmed by weakness oftentimes. I'm so poignantly aware of my besetting sin that clings so closely. It's less the trial outside that challenges us as the trial going inside. And and so where does Peter guide us and direct us to give us hope in that? How can I finish the Christian race? Will I make it to the end? Will the trials and the afflictions and the weaknesses of my flesh and the temptations of this world swallow me up? And to that, Peter says in verse 5, that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So think here in verse 4 and 5. We have two things being guarded or kept. Our heavenly treasure is kept in heaven for us. And we ourselves on earth are being guarded by the power of God through faith so that God's purposes are not thwart it. The Christian, and notice the word, right? It says in verse 5, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I like the word ready. Everything is already prepared. Nothing is left over. God is not frantically running around calling, uh, you know, the hosts of heaven to the battle stations as if there's still more work that needs to be done. There's some uncertainty in his plans. No, 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 no the final consummation of God's purposes is ready to be revealed. And God's preserving grace guards his people by faith for a purpose that is eternally set and secured. And God's purposes for his elect will not be thwarted. And indeed, God's purposes for his elect often are accomplished through the trials and the challenges that we have. And so Peter is laying again this evidence for the trustworthy, trustworthiness of God in the midst of trials. First, that it is a glorious and Trinitarian salvation that God has wrought for his people. And that second, we have this heavenly inheritance and promise that God is guarding us. That God's purposes in our salvation will not be thwarted. And then thirdly, that the gospel brings sustenance in times of adversity. And that's verses 6 and 7 where Peter says, In this, in in this hope, in this hope of heaven, in this hope of God's preserving grace, we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then Peter says why that happened. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, and now Peter is describing our faith, more precious than gold, which perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we have this kind of paradox. The Christian life, it's a life of difficulty. It's a life of trials. The the scripture says, right, we enter the heaven, we, we enter heaven through many difficulties, right? And yet it is a life overflowing with joy. Not because trials in and of themselves are intrinsically joyful. But because of what the Christian knows the trial accomplishes in the life of the man and woman of faith. Verse 7 says that God has a purpose for trials. That our pains and our sorrows and our griefs and our trials, the afflictions that we face, the persecutions that we endure... Even the sins that God brings us through are not meaningless. They are meaningful. God is working His purposes out through them. God is using them to demonstrate the genuineness of faith for those who endure. And also God is using them to sculpt us and transform us and mold us through affliction to be more and more and more conformed to the likeness of his son in 1st Thessalonians it says this is the will of god your sanctification and what is the instrument that god uses for our sanctification many things among them are trials and they are absolutely meaningful and they are not afflicted to us uh, as Shakespeare says, right? The, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That's not it. But they are coming to us as the God's purposes to sculpt us and to refine us uh, so that we come through fire refined. God is molding you. God is shaping you through the afflictions that you are facing. Trials are a testimony to the ongoing love and grace of God in your life. What... Uh, Where would you be? Think about your life as a Christian. Where would you be if it were not for the trials that God lovingly brought into your life? Where would I be if it were not for the trials that God in His mercy brought and through them multiplied joy and helped me to see myself in Christ? You can trust God in the midst of trials because The sovereign God has ordained these trials in your life for his purpose. They're not accidents. They're not a random event or chance coincidence. It is God's infinite love and goodness that he has ordained not only to guard you and guard your faith for salvation, but to refine you and to refine that faith and to purify you and grow you as a a disciple of the Lord Jesus through this trial. Ultimately, to what purpose? Look back at verse 7 again. To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we can understand this verse in two ways. The main emphasis is that the believer himself or herself will receive praise and glory and honor in, in heaven. For those, the Bible says, who remain steadfast to the end will be blessed, will receive a rich reward. They will receive praise and they will receive glory and honor in heaven as the commendation of faith that God has prepared for each one. But there's also a second meaning in which praise and glory and honor ultimately redounds to God who has sustained us and who has enabled us and even brought the trials into our lives so that we may be strengthened and refined and sanctified through them ultimately that he may receive the glory. And so ultimate praise and ultimate blessing is revealed in that last day when Jesus returns and God is glorified even as his people testify to the the glorious providences of God and the ways in which God sustained them and strengthened them and brought them along even to his heavenly kingdom. Think about all the brothers and sisters in this church. And as a pastor, I have this singular privilege of knowing most of the trials, of course, not to their full extent, but most of the trials that, you have, that God is bringing you through. And can see, especially in the ones that I've known for a long time, the ones who have experienced, uh, because of age, more trials than the rest, and can see the grace and the dignity and the, the purity of love That God is producing in you. Examples like our our dear sister Karen, or Tyler and Cody, and brother, I'm so happy to see you today, in the ways that God has grown their faith and encouraged their spirits through sickness or suffering or trial, marriage trials, many other kinds of trials how that faith is shining forth and how they are more and more being sculpted into the image of Christ. That's like the the hammer of affliction and the furnace of pain gradually stamping the image of Christ upon their lives, sharpening their trust in God. How gracious and tender the Lord has been to us. How sustaining God has been to grant us joy even in the midst of hardships and many of The brothers and sisters in this church are are testimonies to that. We can see how God exudes joy through them in the midst of trial. And then verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And, And reading this verse, you really get this kind of sense that Peter is is somehow like, I don't know, his pen is like dancing or something as he's writing this. That there's this overwhelming sense of joy. That even though he's talking about uh, trusting God in the midst of trials, there's no morosity. There's no misery in this in this phrase. No, no, no. They are filled with love for Jesus. They don't see him, but they love him. And they do not now see him, but they believe in him. And all the more believe in him because they have been brought near to him through the, the suffering and the affliction that God has brought upon their life. And so the trial sharpened their faith and whetted their appetite for heaven. And they rejoice, though afflicted with pain, and are filled with joy, inexpressible joy, filled with glory, the kind of glory that only comes when we draw nearer to the Lord through difficulties. A joy in the future and a joy in the present. A hope for the consummation of all things when Christ will come and he will wipe every tear from our eye. But also the quiet and joyful assurance that my good shepherd is going ahead of me and he is with me. And very soon I will be with him and I will enjoy him forever. And then lastly, there's this fourth thing that Peter presents as evidence of God's trustworthiness in trials. Look at verse 10 to 12. 10 and 12, is a very interesting verse. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Whoa, what's happening here? What, what Peter is doing is he's giving insight into the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, he's providing commentary. What were the Old Testament prophets thinking about? when they received revelation from God and then wrote it down and then went back and looked at what they had received. Hopeful for us, not everything that the prophets received made sense to them. It's as if they were saying to the Lord, Lord, I can't read my own handwriting. What's going on here? Who is this person that will come? Who is the person, the time that the Spirit of Christ is pointing to? It's not clear what you've given to me to say about the one who is to come. So Jesus is saying that that Jesus himself said that the prophets, when, when Jesus was talking with his disciples, Jesus said that the prophets longed to see what you see and longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't. And so what Peter is telling us is that this salvation that we have, it is history's greatest mystery. It's the mystery that God's people Looked ahead to, and peered into, and wondered about, and and they 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 looked ahead, and they had faith, but they didn't have the fullest of the knowledge of the picture that we have. So that gives us great comfort and great assurance that God was with them, and God is with us. And and not only is it uh, history's greatest mystery, but it's also heaven's greatest mystery as well. In verse twelve, it says. These are things into which the angels long to look. As if the angels in heaven are are leaning over the parapets and looking down on creation and wondering, how can it be that our King, God's Son, should suffer and die for these ones who have rebelled against God, who have spurned Him, who have disobeyed His law, what wonders of love God has showered upon them. Who can explain this mystery to us? Because, brothers and sisters, angels are not subjects of God's redemption. They merely are, are witnesses watching the glories of redemption being executed onto his, God's people, onto us and then marveling and wondering and giving glory and praise to God for the wonders of our glorious salvation. Angels veil their faces at the abundance of God's love, demonstrated for us on the cross of Christ. So prophets in history and angels in heaven ponder these things. What a privilege it is for us that we can ponder them too. And you see the application that Peter is making. These beleaguered Christians suffering various trials and afflictions have as a bedrock for their souls and a foundation of their trust such a glorious God, such a demonstration of his glorious grace, such a a magnificent display of his attributes, not not just a part, but god in his full display of attribute, God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, that even the angels in heaven are amazed at this glorious salvation. And and that's the salvation that Peter is putting forth as the evidence of God's trustworthiness that we can trust him in the midst of trials. And I want you to notice another thing about these verses in chapter one. Look back. Look back over chapter 1. All of the verses that we have gone through, there is not one command in those verses. There is nothing of a do this or do that, or there's none of these imperatives. But all of it, so far in this book, as we've gone through, are indicatives, statements, factual evidences of what God has done, what God's salvation he has wrought, his promised inheritance, the hope and the joy that it produces in the life of the believer, the glory and the wonder that it elicits in history and in heaven. And and so, again, Peter is building a case. He's encouraging the churches by considering not things that we need to do, but reminding us of the truth of what God has done, the salvation that we have in him. All of it so that we might find trust and encouragement as the bedrock for our souls. Trust and encouragement in God as a reminder from, uh, as, as we are reminded of his truth. The foundation is here, and, and all of the applications come later. The, the, there are many, many commands in First Peter, but those commands flow out of this foundation of that we can trust him, and so because we can trust him, we can obey him. We can follow him. So let's move on to the second mountain peak. The first mountain peak was chapter 1, where Peter gives us, boom, 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 all these demonstrations of the trustworthiness of God and the evidences of his trustworthiness in, in our salvation. And then the second peak is a glorious example. And this is helpful for many of us because We learn many times not so much through the teaching as through the examples. Many of you who are homeschoolers or teachers know that you teach, 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 but you need also to give examples. And through the examples, the teaching has an easier way to make home in our hearts. And Peter knows this, and so he gives us an example. In chapter 2, look at verse 19 to 24. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps Giving as an example, an example of trusting God in the midst of a persecution, the greatest example of the one who trusted God to the greatest extent in the midst of the greatest persecution while doing the greatest good. And this, of course, was the Lord Jesus. He committed no sin, he had no deceit in his mouth, he didn't deserve to suffer like this, he didn't deserve to be flogged or to be beaten or mocked, or spat upon, or maligned, or humiliated, or crucified. He didn't deserve the taunts from the crowd, or the jeers, or the pain. But what did he do? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The key verse in this whole story, uh, example of Jesus, is the end of verse 23. When Christ went through all of these things, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And this is the the example that Christ is giving in this story, that Christ trusted God and entrusted himself to God on the cross. And in that trust, God, the judge, the one who judges justly, judged Jesus As a sin bearer, God judged Christ and bestowed upon Christ the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And yet, Peter still says that the Lord Jesus trusted in him. The Lord Jesus endured the cross, committing himself fully to the God who judges justly. He offered his body as a sacrifice to sin unto God willingly, bearing in himself our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He bore in himself the right the white hot wrath of God against sin in our place and died that we might be justified that we might be forgiven and that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and and Jesus never stopped trusting in God even when God turned his face away from the son and and poured out wrath upon the son the Lord Jesus trusted in him and said into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke verse Luke 23 verse 46 and the one that Christ trusted raised him from the dead and brought him to his right hand in glory where Christ is seated and the uh, before the right hand of the Father and always lives to make intercession for the saints okay so this is a passage that presents the glorious gospel of of substitutionary atonement, that God punished Christ as our substitute, that Jesus bore in his body our sin, that he gave us righteousness, his righteousness imputed to us, and our sin imputed to him, and him bearing our judgment in his place that we might be saved. It's present in this text. And yet that's not the point that Peter is using this text for. He's not arguing substitutionary atonement, although it's present here. Rather, he's using Jesus as an example of one who trusted God while suffering for doing good. And again, that's that theme, the theme of trusting God in the midst of afflictions, especially while doing good. It's, it's, it's the mountain peak. It comes out again in this story, in this example of Christ. Jesus So the main purpose of of pointing to the example of Jesus was to show us one, the ultimate one, who trusted God while suffering for doing good. Jesus is the ultimate good. He was doing the ultimate good to redeem the people of God. He suffered the ultimate injustice, the ultimate pain inflicted upon him by the sinful man and by the wrath of God. And yet he entrusted himself to God. And brothers and sisters, in verse 21, it says that we are called to follow in his footsteps. As we go through trials of life, Paul has already demonstrated to us the trustworthiness of God, and Jesus exemplifies trusting ourselves to God and entrusting ourselves to God. Peter is holding up Christ as an example for us and for the Christians to whom he was writing who were suffering for doing good, and he is saying that you are following in Jesus' footsteps. Brothers and sisters, as you suffer for righteousness' sake and as you trust yourselves to God, you are following in Jesus' footsteps. So take heart. Trust God like Jesus did, and trust yourselves to God. And that's where Peter ends in chapter, one, chapter 4 and chapter 5. So we're going to very briefly look at chapter 4 and 5. says, Peter goes in many, many greater lengths, but then he kind of brings it back and concludes in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, on the basis of everything that he's discussed in this whole book, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. My dear sisters and brothers, many of you are suffering, but you are not suffering randomly. You are suffering according to God's will. We are suffering the effects of sin in this broken world that brings sickness, defects, sorrows. We are suffering under the pain of sins, our own sin or others, oftentimes both. So what is the Word of God directing us to do in that season of adversity or pain or anxiety or uncertainty? Remember that you are suffering according to the will of God, that He is the sovereign, trustworthy, faithful Creator, that He is the faithful Creator who has sovereignly chosen you for salvation, purchased you, through the work of his Son, for your redemption by his shed blood, regenerated you by his Holy Spirit, and is at work in sanctifying you through his word and spirit and also through the means of grace in the church and also through trials. The whole of the blessed Trinity has covenanted to redeem a people for God. And you are one of those people. God is your faithful creator. He has promised you a living hope and an eternal inheritance. And, and his hope and his inheritance and his gospel is sustaining us with joy in the midst of trials so that the most beleaguered are often the most joyful, knowing that in these trials our faith is refined and he is drawing us nearer in fellowship with our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, through the trial. And we have fellowship with him who has gone ahead of us. Who has trusted God in the midst of his affliction and whom God vindicated and has made us, and has made him our great high priest, the one that has gone ahead. I uh, received a little bit of help in preparing this sermon by an illustration that Sinclair Ferguson, the great preacher, used. And as it turns out, this um, illustration also applies to me. The illustration that Dr. Ferguson used is. In his country, which is Scotland, most people drive with a manual stick shift transmission, right? And I have a manual stick stick shift transmission as well. Most of you probably have automatic transmission, so the illustration might not be so clear, but I think you know what I mean. It's a stick shift is where you have to adjust the gears in your car for the terrain that you're driving in. So when it's going downhill and fast, You put it in a high gear. But if you leave it in the high gear and now it's going to be a a hill, what happens? The engine lugs lugs down. And if you don't change gears, eventually it'll stall. So instinctually, as we learn to drive a manual stick shift transmission, we learn to, to sense when it's time to shift gears, when it's time to put it into that low gear and climb up the hill. And that, that illustration is helpful for us in our Christian life. Sometimes we have the wind at our back and we're driving downhill and it's easy to put it into the high gear. And other times we, we encounter a hill and it's a steep one and we need to instinct put our hand on the gear lever and, and, and shift it into the low gear and remind ourselves, call to mind the glories of God's salvation. Put it into the low gospel gear where we remind ourselves of how trustworthy God is. Call to mind the the living hope and the eternal reward promised for us in heaven. Call to mind that God is preserving us by his grace and through his power for the salvation to be revealed. That afflictions come to us as a gift from a loving hand of God. That way we don't stall when we climb up the hill. That way we can be strengthened and we can motor up and, 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 and rejoice in the midst of trials. So just to conclude, my brothers and sisters, I don't have anything tremendously pastoral to say for the trial and the affliction that you are going through. I really don't. All I can say is, let us look to God's word. Let us examine What a glorious salvation God has produced for us. Let us look to Christ as our example, who trusted the Lord while doing good. Trust in the Lord, my dear brother. Trust in the Lord, my dear sister. He is the God of your salvation. As the cares multiply and the pain increases and the sorrows remain so poignant, may God strengthen you. May God help us to follow Peter's closing admonition in chapter 5. So let's look at chapter 5 as we close, where Peter says in verse 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. My dear brother and sister, the Lord Jesus does care for his children, and he has given us a glorious salvation as a bedrock for our souls, that we might put our trust in the Lord and be strengthened in the midst of affliction, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. O gracious God, Lord, you know the hidden sorrows of each person's heart in this church Lord, you know greater than we ourselves know the affliction and the pain that your people are feeling. And Lord, perhaps some of us are not going through a a season of difficulty. And yet, oh Lord, this sermon is also for them as well, for all of us. Lord, help us to wonder at the glories of God in our salvation that God the Father has elected us from, by, with his divine foreknowledge from before the foundation of the world, that God the Son has purchased us by his blood, that God the Spirit has uh, regenerated us, and that all of these things, Lord, have bought for us new life and a living hope and an inheritance in heaven, and that you are preserving your people so that, Lord, though they stumble, they will not be cast headlong, but you will preserve them for the salvation to be revealed that is ready to be revealed. And so, Lord, Jesus is our own example of trusting you in the midst of affliction. And by his trust, he has purchased for us our salvation, having received, Lord, your judgment and wrath in our place. So help us, O Lord, to look to him as our example. Help us, O Lord, to put our trust in you, all the evidences of of the trustworthiness of God, Lord, stack up so high, much, much higher, Lord, than the doubts or the challenges that we might face if we were only to look at you and call to mind the glories of God in our salvation. So I pray, O Lord, that this may be an encouragement to your people, that they may be sustained in faith, that they may multiply, Lord, joy and fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that the people of God may be knit together And you may be glorified, even, O Lord, as you refine their faith and bring them ultimately to the image and likeness of Christ as we wait his heavenly return. Help us to trust you, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen.